good to be back here with you today, gathered together and around God's Word. And as we're gathered together in the name of Christ, filled with His Spirit, there's a real sense that we are gathered around Christ's heavenly throne. Some understand the call to worship is that kind of signal that we've been called out of the world to spend this hour or hour and a half together in God's presence together. And we devote this part of our worship service as we're gathered around Christ's heavenly throne to listen to the words of our glorious King as he reveals himself to us, as he speaks to us the words of the gospel, and as he instructs us on how to follow him. The passage we're looking at this morning from Matthew chapter 25, and we'll be looking at verses 31 through 46 of that chapter, is all about King Jesus sitting on his glorious throne. I know it's been a few weeks since we've gathered, so if you remember, we're in this part of Matthew that's known as the Olivet Discourse. And this is teaching that Jesus delivered to his disciples right before he was arrested and crucified. And in these two chapters of Matthew, Jesus is teaching his disciples all about his coming in glory and what that will be like. He's been preparing them for the fact that his coming is going to be delayed, but he's also assuring them that his coming will happen. And so he's encouraging them to endure and persevere and wait faithfully with faith and love until he comes. In the passage we're going to look at this morning, he gives us a glimpse of that last day when Jesus, the Son of Man, appears in all of his glory and sits down on his glorious throne. And at that time, he says, he will judge all the nations. So that's what we're going to look at today, this last day. And we're going to organize our time under two simple sentences. First, Christ sits. Christ sits. Second, Christ separates. Christ sits and he separates. So let's read this passage together from Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. If you have a Bible that we've given you, you, you took one off the back table, you can turn to page 830 and you'll, or 831 and you'll find it there. If you are looking at the Bible, you'll find the big number 25 and Kind of run your finger down the pages till you get to the little number 31, and that's where we're going to start reading. Listen to God's word. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? 
And when, were you, and when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is God's word. God. Our first point here is that Christ sits. And we're going to look at the importance of his sitting in two ways. First, Christ sits in victory over sin and death for his people. And secondly, he sits in judgment over all the nations. So he sits in, he sits in victory over sin and death for his people. In verse 31, Jesus says that when he comes in glory, he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, sitting is not normally an activity that would be worth our notice, but it depends on the context, doesn't it? In the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, part of what moves the story forward once the children get into Narnia is that there are these four thrones in the castle of Ker Parabel. And there's a prophecy that two sons of Adam and daughters of Eve will sit on them. At different points in the story, then, you wonder how this prophecy is going to come true. So when Edmund starts to turn, you wonder, will Edmund repent of being a traitor? Is there any way for him to be redeemed? And when the battle starts, you wonder, will Peter be killed? Once the white witch is defeated and Edmund is revived by Lucy's cordial that Aslan had given her, or that Father Christmas had given her, the great happy ending of the story is that these newly crowned kings and queens are sitting on the four thrones, and they're ruling happily and bringing justice and peace to Narnia. That's the happy ending. The happy ending is that the kings and queens that were prophesied are sitting there ruling. Now, that's just a, a children's story, but it shows us how significant the act of sitting can be. And it gives us a glimpse into the great triumph that Jesus is describing here in Matthew chapter 25. Remember now, Jesus is saying these things to his disciples just a few days before his arrest and crucifixion. And so at the time that he's speaking these words, he has no visible signs of royalty. As a man, he has no great signs of status or power, besides perhaps his genealogical connection to David. Jesus seems to be a, a long way from any kind of glorious king. And in fact, in just a short time, he'd be arrested and spat upon by the leaders of Israel. And then he would be turned over to the Roman soldiers who will strip him naked, and they will crown him with thorns and beat him. 
Now they will bow down to him and confess him as, as king, but only as a form of mockery. It's just a way to make him look ridiculous. So the Son of Man is about to appear, but he's not going to appear in glory. He's going to appear in total, grotesque humiliation. He's going to hang condemned between two thieves. And those who followed him are going to look like complete fools. As a matter of fact, they'll feel so foolish that most of them will abandon him in his hour of need. But here's Jesus telling his disciples that that humiliation isn't the end. It's not the whole story. And humiliation isn't even the whole story of his crucifixion. Because even as he's humiliated in death, he's glorified. You see, his death reveals his obedience to the Father. And it reveals his amazing love and God's amazing grace. Because in Jesus' death, the sinless one dies to pay sin's price and save sinners. That's why Jesus says he came, to, to serve people by dying and paying for their sin. And then Jesus rose from the dead, and because he was perfectly righteous and had no sin of his own, the tomb had no power to hold him down. And so he rose from the dead, he appears to his disciples, and then he ascended into heaven to take his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. We know that the scriptures tell us that Jesus is seated now in the heavenly places. And it also tells us here, when he comes in glory, he will sit on his glorious throne. So the fact that Christ sits, the fact that Jesus is seated on his glorious throne, is the great sign of his victory. He was cursed for sin, but he's no longer cursed. He was exalted. He was raised to be the Son of God in power, and he was taken up into glory. The fact that he is enthroned in heaven shows us that he's the God-man who conquered sin and he conquered death. So Jesus now sits enthroned as the glorious king and he will rule until all things, all of his enemies, are placed under his feet, including that last great enemy, death itself. On that day when Jesus is revealed, when the Son of Man comes and he sits on his glorious throne, it will be evident to all people what is true now, that he is the king over all. And on that day, those Roman soldiers, that battalion that mockingly bowed to him and hailed him as king in Jerusalem, on that day when he comes in glory and he sits on his glorious throne, they will bow to him and confess that he is indeed their king and their judge. What I want you to see, though, is that if not for the seated Christ, people like us who profess faith in Christ, we would have no hope of salvation. Because Jesus sat down in victory, we can stand boldly in God's presence if we have faith in Christ and his work. Because Jesus Christ sat down Christians have confidence that we also will overcome death by his power. Because Jesus Christ will sit on that glorious day, then if we believe in him, we know that even if we die, yet shall we live. So the seated Christ is a promise. 
It's a promise of joy and deliverance and hope to Christ's people. And it's a sign of terror to Christ's enemies. Brothers and sisters, is your hope in the seated Christ? I want you to see Christ on the throne, on his throne. He's not fretting about who is sitting in the Oval Office. Christ on his throne, he's not intimidated by the people who sit in the the corporate executive suites of the places that you work. Professors who hold endowed chairs at prestigious universities, they don't impress Christ seated on his throne. But the seated Christ, he's concerned about us, his people. In the heavenly throne room, the seated Christ lives to make intercession for us. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, seated at his right hand, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is seated there because he's completed his atoning work. He's made satisfaction for our sin. And we can be certain that the seated Christ's advocacy on our behalf is affected. God the Father always grants the request of the glorified Son. Nothing can hinder the reign and the ministry of of the seated Christ. And that's true now, and it's true in the world to come. The seated Christ should make us joyful and confident people. So if you're a Christian today, take comfort. Nourish your soul by meditating on Christ, the one who is seated on his throne now, and who, when he comes on that day, will sit on his throne. He sits on that throne in victory over sin and death for our sake. Christ sits. And Christ sits on his throne in judgment over all nations. We see that in verse 32 when he tells us that all the nations will be gathered to him and he will separate them as a shepherd separates his sheep into sheep and goats. Jesus reveals that he's not merely the king of Israel, He's the king over all humanity. The nation's gathering to the Messiah is a repeated prophecy in the Old Testament. And we see it fulfilled in a few different ways. By God's grace, one of the ways that the nations are gathered to the throne of the Messiah is by hearing the gospel preached and they believe it. So we see this happening in the books of Acts. As the nations are are receiving the gospel, they hear it preached and they receive it by faith, they are gathered to the Messiah. And we see by God's grace this great gathering of nations to Christ is happening even now today. It's evident here, as we're here, people from all over the world who are united around the gospel and united around Christ. We've been gathered to the throne of the Messiah. And it happens as the gospel continues to go out. Praise God, the nations are gathered to Christ. But this great gathering of nations is also fulfilled in this final picture, as all nations are gathered before Christ as the judge. We see here that all nations will be gathered, but we also see that nationality or ethnicity doesn't count for anything when we gather before Christ on his throne. So whether you descend from Western Europeans or East Asians or Native Americans or Africans or Israelites— There's no preferential treatment. It's not the Israelites are the sheep and everybody else is the goats. That's not what we see here. 
So it won't matter if you were a wealthy citizen of a Western democracy or if you were the poor subject in a totalitarian dictatorship. And we see today there's lots of ways that we human beings divide ourselves up into groups and we identify ourselves in this way or that way. But none of those identities will earn any special favor from Jesus when we face him in judgment. When we are gathered before Jesus on his throne on that day, all humanity will be united by the fact that Jesus is the glorious king and the judge, and we are not. Every one of us will face Jesus on his throne. Every one of our neighbors will face Jesus on his throne. Everyone who's ever lived on the earth will face Jesus on his throne. Well, this is one of the things that makes the teaching of God's word seem weirder and weirder to people who live in the 21st century. Our culture has rejected the idea that human beings were created by God, that God has created us for a specific purpose, and that we'll be accountable to God. We all naturally reject the idea that there's some purpose external to us that we have to submit to or live for. Our instinct is to sort of be true to ourselves and to pursue what makes us happy. And so we think we create our own purpose and we create our own identities. We think that to be human is to be free from all those constraints or external definitions. But this teaching we find here about Jesus the judge directly opposes all of those instincts that we naturally have as 21st century Westerners. We don't make ourselves. God made us. And we don't get to invent the good life for ourselves. We don't get to define it. God is the one who is good. And he instructs us. And our personal happiness isn't the, the measure of our humanity. The exalted, the exalted Christ on his throne. He is our judge. How does that strike you today? Does it feel uncomfortable to think of Jesus the judge? Is it too judgy? I said a minute ago that those soldiers who mocked him and beat him will bow down to him. Back in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, they saw themselves as having the right to sit in judgment on Jesus. Is that how you see him? How have you treated Jesus in your life? Have you ignored him? Have you disregarded his call to believe in him and worship him? Have you tried to use Jesus for your own purposes? Do you sit in judgment on Jesus and the way he's failed to live up to your expectations? When Jesus comes, he will sit on his throne and you will meet him. There's no hiding from Christ now. He knows all that you do and think. But because we can't see Jesus, it might be easy for us to push that out of our minds. You know, we're like the toddler who hides our, our hands and we say, can you see me? I'm hiding, right? So we might go on living in that delusion, thinking that what we want is what matters most. But on that day, that delusion will evaporate. There'll be no avoiding Jesus. We will come face to face with him. What will that meeting be like for you? When Jesus comes, he will sit on his throne, and all of us 
People from all places at all times will be gathered before him. Christ sits. He sits in victory for his people, but he sits in judgment. That meeting will be terrible for Christ's enemies. That's our first point this morning. Christ sits. At the throne of Jesus, we see then there will be this great equality as everyone faces judgment. But Jesus also says there will be a great separation. And that's our second major point. Christ separates. We see this separation first in verses uh, 32 and 33. He will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. The right hand here is the place of blessing and honor, and we see what this blessing means in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then in verse 41, we see the opposite pronouncement. He will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then the last verse of our passage provides a final and crucial piece of the puzzle. He says, and these, talking about those on his left, these will go away into into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And I say this is crucial because of that word righteous. You see, the separation that we're seeing here is not simply two different groups that are headed to two different places or destinies. The contrast here is between the righteous, who are blessed forever and on the king's right hand, with the unrighteous, who are eternally cursed on the king's left hand. Righteousness and unrighteousness are the basis of the great separation that's coming. Our church's statement of faith puts it this way. We say that we believe that a solemn separation will then take place And the wicked will be adjudged to endless punishment and the righteous to endless joy. And that this judgment will fix forever the final state of men in heaven or hell on principles of righteousness. That's what we see here. A judgment, a separation on principles of righteousness. It's crucial that we understand this point about righteousness because it should change the way we we think about kind of the ultimate questions. The ultimate questions of our lives are not just, do I want to go to heaven or hell? There's a more crucial question, which is, am I righteous before God or unrighteous? On that day, where I fall will be dependent on, am I righteous or unrighteous? Have you wrestled with that question? Are you righteous? Now, to answer that question, we have to see what Jesus means by righteousness and unrighteousness. And Jesus provides a surprising definition of righteousness and unrighteousness in our passage. Let's read verses 34 through 40 again. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, 
Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What I want you to see is that Jesus defines righteousness here in terms of care for the least of his brothers and sisters. And then in verse 41 through 45, he describes unrighteousness in terms of a failure to minister to the needs of the least of his brothers and sisters. To put this in some context, I want to just read a passage from earlier in Matthew, Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 through 6. Jesus says there, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. I want to notice a couple of things from this Matthew 18 passage. First, we see again Jesus connects final judgment with sin against his people. Right? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for them to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Second, notice the way he describes his people. His people are marked by humility and faith. They are the ones who humble themselves like the, the child he has in his lap or around, beside him. And they are the ones who believe in me, these little ones who believe in me. Now it's astounding to see the way Jesus identifies with his people. And it's all the more astounding when we remember his identity. He's the exalted king the king of the universe, sitting on his glorious throne. Our exalted king identifies so deeply with these humble, childlike people who believe in him that to receive and care for such a one is to minister to Christ himself. And to, to neglect one of these little ones who believes in Christ is to neglect Christ himself. To neglect such a one is a damning omission. And so here is Jesus' surprising definition of righteousness in Matthew 25. Righteousness is serving and loving those Christ died for. They are Christ's blood-bought saints. They are the body of the exalted, enthroned Christ. To serve these brothers and sisters of Christ is to serve Christ. To neglect them is to persecute them, to persecute Christ, and that is unrighteousness. Now, if I ask a random sample of Christians, believers, to define righteousness for me, I don't think they would define it the way Jesus does in Matthew chapter 25. We might say that righteousness is maybe sharing the gospel or obeying the, the commandments of Scripture or caring for the poor. Those wouldn't be wrong answers. But they leave out the element of righteousness that Jesus highlights here, ministering to his brothers and sisters. So why does Jesus put it like this? It sounds like maybe you could become righteous and be welcomed into eternal life just by making sure you do good to Christians. But if you think carefully about what Jesus is saying, you see there's more to righteousness than that. Look again at verse 40. Jesus says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The kind of controlling idea here is that we should serve Christ. 
The key issue here is our treatment of Jesus. Our treatment of his people reveals our attitude and treatment of Jesus. So what I want you to see is the ultimate basis of righteousness is how you've treated Jesus. It's your relationship to Jesus. If you can remember back to a few weeks ago when we were last gathered around the word like this, we looked at this parable of the ten young women who went out to meet the bridegroom. If you remember that parable, it seemed like the kind of distinguishing mark of the wise versus the foolish was simply whether they remembered to bring oil or not. But as we looked closer at that parable, what we saw, it's not the oil itself that makes the difference. It was their relationship with the bridegroom. It was because of their devotion to the bridegroom that the the five wise young women, women prepared themselves and they brought their oil. They were ready with oil because they loved the bridegroom and they were ready to wait for him however long it took. And the foolish young women, by contrast, they were shut out not just because they didn't have oil, but because they had no devotion to the bridegroom. And the bridegroom's last words reveal this. He says to those foolish young women, truly I say to you, I do not know you. That was the key issue. They were not known by the bridegroom. They didn't love and respond to his knowledge of them. So the question here, am I righteous, is really the question, am I serving Christ? And the question, am I serving Christ, is really the question, do I trust in Christ and receive his service to me? You see, we don't serve Christ by giving Christ stuff that he doesn't have. Christ doesn't need anything for us. God is independent of us. He doesn't need that kind of service. We serve Christ by receiving his service to us. We honor and glorify Christ by trusting in the atonement he made for our sins. In the words of Matthew 18, that passage we looked at a few minutes ago, the first and most important way we serve Christ is by humbling ourselves, becoming like little children, and believing in him. Believing in him and his work for us. And the reason this is is because no one except Jesus is righteous on their own. The righteousness then that we need to gain entry into the joy of Christ can only be received by faith as a gift. We know that there are none who seek after God. No one is righteous. No, not one. The truth is that apart from God's grace, none of us are devoted to Christ. None of us would be like those five wise young women. All of us are goats, or should be goats on that last day, if it were left to ourselves. All of us would deserve to be cast into the fire that's been prepared for Satan and his angels. But the good news of the gospel is that those people who are goats today don't have to be goats on the last day. Christ has come to save us. Jesus Christ the righteous died for the unrighteous so that those who believe in him can be counted righteous. That's what we confessed in the words of the Westminster Confession earlier today. Earlier I asked you to consider what it will be like when you face Christ on that day. What would you say to Christ? What evidence might you offer to say why you should be put in the group with the sheep? Well, if you tell Jesus about all the good things you've done, all the times you went to church, all the ways you tried to do good to Christians, all the ways you tried to be a good neighbor or a good parent, 
you'll be condemning yourself. Because what you're saying to Jesus, if you say that, is, King Jesus, I don't need your righteousness. I've brought my own. If you do that, you're rejecting Jesus and his work. We honor Christ on his throne by throwing ourselves on his mercy. Come to Christ on his throne like a little child, humble, empty-handed, believing in him for salvation. We serve Christ on his throne by professing that we have no hope other than his blood shed for our sin. We glorify Christ by trusting in his glorious work. If you look at your life and you know that you have a a track record or a history of serving yourself and neglecting Christ and his people, today is the day to repent and believe and receive his righteousness. Prepare to meet Jesus today by trusting in him. If you trust him, he promises to clothe you, to put a, a robe on of his righteousness so that you can stand before him on that last day. Don't put this off. When Jesus comes in glory, it'll be too late. Our righteous status depends on our treatment of Christ. Have we honored Christ by trusting in his saving work? Or have we dishonored him by trusting in our own righteousness? So we see that the basis of our righteousness is saving faith in Jesus. But we also see that the evidence of this righteousness that we receive by faith is how we treat Christ's people. The evidence that we've been counted righteous is how we treat Christ's people. Our treatment of Jesus, then, is inseparable from the way we treat his body. If I could be so bold, let me try to expand on Jesus' parable of the ten young women. Imagine how absurd it would be if the five wise young women who prepared to meet the bridegroom, they got their oil ready, they they waited that long delay until midnight, they're excited to meet the bridegroom, but as soon as they're entering the wedding feast, they take their flaming torches and they light the bride's dress on fire. That's ridiculous, right? It's absurd. If you're truly devoted to the bridegroom, you're going to honor his bride. Faith in Christ should change our lives so that all of our priorities are now ordered by the gospel. You know, if we're selfishly motivated, then usually that means we seek to make friends with people who can help us out in some way. One of my children this week had the opportunity to use his money to buy food at the concession stand at the Little League ballpark. And he told me afterwards how he was amazed at how nice the guy was to him as he spent lots of money at the concession stand, right? And he learned, I think, the lesson that people who you're buying things from are often really nice to you, right? We cozy up to those folks who can give us stuff, who can get us the better job or tickets to the game or whatever it is we want. But if we've been rescued by King Jesus, our approach should become totally different. Instead of looking to befriend those folks who have worldly credentials or who can get us somewhere, we look to those who've been saved by Christ. We look to befriend those who are Christ's people. We look to receive those who bear Christ's name. 
We should seek to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ because they're Christ's brothers and sisters. In Christ, they've become our family. It's common to see people quoting this passage in a kind of general way, and I think a careless way. They talk about this passage in terms of ministry to the poor, and they'll use this phrase, least of these. And they imply that Christ identifies with all poor and oppressed people simply on the basis of them being poor and oppressed. Now, I want to say there's lots of instruction in the Bible about caring for our neighbors and the poor and even our enemies. But that's not what Jesus is teaching in this passage. Jesus is clear that the solidarity he has with these poor and oppressed people is because they are his brothers, the least of his brothers, those people who have been united to him by faith. Then that doesn't exclude righteousness in terms of caring for our neighbors and our enemies, but we just need to see the main point of Jesus' teaching here. Jesus' teaching here says that we should see the world in a different way than maybe we're naturally prone to do it. Jesus is saying here that those who belong to Jesus, those who received grace from him, those who have been declared righteous by faith, should live in a way that's marked by that grace and not by our natural assumptions. What I mean is that naturally we assume that we have the most in common with those people who are just like us, humanly speaking. So we naturally gravitate towards those people who share our nationality or maybe our political party or our ethnicity or our education level. We have natural affinities for people who have kids the same age as us or who are from the same hometown as we are or maybe who work in the same profession or who like the same kind of music. In the age of the social internet, there are thousands of little cliques you can find, right? Every weird person can find his own weird group to associate with. And we're tempted to think these are the most important uh, associations. There's all kinds of ways we form tribes and factions. Now, being devoted to Christ doesn't mean we just completely ignore those natural relationships. But being a Christian relativizes those relationships. It puts them in their proper place. Following Christ means that we're very careful not to let any of those other identities take over our lives. We don't let any of those other identities push aside or rule over our identity as Christ's blood-bought people. And so we should cherish our place in the family of God above all the other places we belong or groups we belong to. So one reason we will minister to and identify with poor people or immigrants or people who have nothing in common with us is because we recognize that some of them are indeed our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have something in common with our our persecuted Iranian brother in Christ, even if we've never met them or couldn't speak the same language. Those who belong to Christ care even for the least of Christ's brothers and sisters. When we meet Christ on his glorious throne, one of the evidences that we have genuine faith in him, one of the things he's going to be looking for is how have you treated my blood-bought people? How we've treated Christ's blood-bought people reveals whether or not we possess the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. And this really shows up in the way we care for each other on a day-to-day basis. Christ's work creates a new family. In Christ, we're adopted children of God. We're brothers and sisters. And these are precious titles. 
We shouldn't let calling each other, you know, Brother John or Sister Heather, we shouldn't let those things sound like the corny things that an old Southerner would say. These are precious names that we have for each other. We are dear siblings with Christ. So Jesus says that if we're devoted to him, we're going to be like those five young women who make preparations by orienting our entire lives around waiting for his coming. But unlike those young women in the parable, we don't do that by bringing lamps or bringing oil for our lamps. We orient our lives around Christ's coming by serving his brothers and sisters. Jesus, sitting on his glorious throne, is asking us, how are you ministering to the needs of the ones I've died for? How are you caring for the least of your brothers and sisters? Those who first read this gospel would have very likely known brothers and sisters in Christ who were hungry and suffering deprivation. We know that many Jewish Christians had to flee Jerusalem under persecution from Jewish authorities. And there were persecutions of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. We can see evidence of this even in the New Testament as the, the writer of Hebrews commends those he wrote to for the way they had compassion on their brothers and sisters who had had their property plundered and how they had visited and cared for those who were in prison. How inconvenient would that have been for them? Just imagine the social stigma of living in the Roman Empire and going to, to visit someone who had been in prison for their faith. You're kind of outing yourself, aren't you? The point I'm making here is that there's no circumstance that we could dream up that would excuse us from caring for each other. Well, this isn't to deny the barriers we face. We live busy lives today, don't we? And maybe they're too busy. We all have responsibilities and commitments. The fact that we live in suburban Houston means that we are physically distant from each other and we have to deal with Houston traffic. And so to, to visit a brother or a sister on a weeknight, to go to a small group or a Bible study or, or to gather to pray, you're going you're gonna to be a while, right? So there are many ways in which caring for each other is inconvenient. But the kind of commitment Jesus prizes is costly. It's laying down your life discipleship, and it requires the power of the Holy Spirit. So if we're going to care for each other the way Jesus tells us to care for each other in this text, it will mean saying no to some other commitments. Now, as your pastors, Christ has not given us the role of playing your conscience. So we don't have the job of saying to you, you know, you're allowed to spend this much time at work, but after that, you need to come home. He hasn't authorized us to say, thus saith the Lord, your children should only be involved in one extracurricular activity per semester at a time, and you shall only miss two Sundays a quarter for recreational purposes. Like, we don't have the authority to say that to you. But we do say, thus saith the Lord, care for your brothers and sisters in Christ. We should all be willing to open up our lives to God and to each other and say, am I loving my brothers and sisters the way Christ does? Am I orienting my life around caring for Christ's people? Am I ready for Christ's coming? We should look at our lives and say, what's, what is it the way I'm spending my time on, my, my money on, my emotional energy on? What do those things say about my commitment to Christ and to Christ's people? Do you know your brothers and sisters here in the church deeply enough to know their needs, their physical and spiritual needs? How would our church look differently 
if we grew more in this way, if we were more intentional in our, our care for each other? How might our gospel witness be enhanced if our neighbors could see us caring for each other in this way? In John 17, Jesus prays that the world would know that God sent Jesus by our love for each other and our unity in Christ. He says here in Matthew 25 that our faith in him will be revealed by our care for his brothers and sisters, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we get ready to meet Christ on his glorious throne by trusting him and loving his people. It's impossible to spend time in this passage without being sobered and encouraged. It's sobering to see Christ on his throne and to think about that day. He is the great and mighty king. He is the judge of all people. This isn't something any of us should take lightly. If you're not following Jesus today, I hope you don't dismiss the seriousness of the fact that you will meet King Jesus one day. Don't let yourself put this aside and push it off to another day. As surely as you're sitting here listening to me, you will meet Christ. He will be on his glorious throne. Today is a day for repentance and faith. Come to him and he will clothe you in his righteousness. If you don't, there will only be judgment for you on that day. It's a terrible vision Jesus presents. That you will enter the fire that's been prepared for Satan and his hosts. We know that the demons know the truth about Jesus and they tremble. But we also know that Satan is the father of lies. He would have you join him in dismissing Christ. For Christians, this passage is sobering as we evaluate our lives in light of caring for Christ's people. Do our lives reflect our profession of faith? Is our love for Christ showing up in our love for his brothers and sisters? And if it's not, then what's missing? And this is sobering for us to contemplate the end that our unsaved neighbors are heading to. Do we sense the urgency of their spiritual danger? Do we long for and pray for the salvation of the people we talk to outside our neighborhood mailbox or talk to at work? This passage should wake us up out of our slumber. It should remove any reticence that we have in sharing the gospel. Without the gospel, our unbelieving neighbors have no hope. But as sobering as this scene is, it's full of joy for God's people. Whatever inconvenience and suffering that you are enduring and following Christ and serving his people, think of the joy set before you. One day you will stand before Christ and the king will say these words to you. Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Brothers and sisters, this is why we fight sin and cling to Christ. This is why we lay down our lives for Christ's sake. This is why we serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ the King, he's the righteous judge of all people, and he is our good king, and he is our good and gracious savior, and he is seated on his throne, and he will come again in glory. Let's pray.
the Christ, our glorious King. We pray for spiritual eyes. Open our eyes to see you on your throne, even now. Help us live in this reality. Help we as your people live for the joy set before us, willing to sacrifice all that we have to serve you and your brothers and sisters. We pray that you would continue the work you've begun in us, that you would continue renewing our church so that every day we more and more reflect your grace and glory. We pray that in our relationships, we would be a bright light of the gospel. I pray for the, the hurting and those who feel disconnected among us, that you would bring brothers and sisters into their lives who would care for them well. I pray that you'd help us all to feel the, the desire and that give us the initiative to reach out, to encourage each other. Father, I pray for the lost who are here that you would open their eyes to the reality that they will see Jesus on his throne. Father, give an urgency. Prevent any further delay. Save sinners from their sin today through faith in Christ. And give us urgency this week. Help us to see the plight of our lost neighbors and desire their salvation and preach the gospel. Father, we pray that through the ministry of our church, men and women would be saved from hell through Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.